Get ready. The DE Talk podcast starts now. Insightful conversations and dialogue helping you put the human factor back in HR. When you're a federal contractor, two things are certain. One, compliance with contract obligations are non-negotiable. And two, it's not a matter of if you will ever undergo a compliance evaluation or audit, but when. Trust me when I say each audit brings its own unique challenges. And after more than 100 audits myself and zero conciliation agreements, I can give you some advice to help you along the way. Joining me in today's conversation is employment law expert John Fox of Fox Wang & Morgan. And I'll say his skills at navigating the world of federal contracts and legal requirements are definitely unmatched. When we first were brainstorming this topic, he jokingly said that he needed no prep work to have this conversation. It's one he's been having with clients across the country for over 46 years. So let's get started, John. Here we are again, you freshly back from California and me back from Florida. No better time to talk about stress-inducing topics like compliance audits than after a relaxing vacation, right? (laughs) Right. Well, I'm glad to join you again, uh, Candy, and have this discussion, uh, which we could go for an hour or 10 hours or 10 days. Well, you know, John, when I was thinking about this podcast this morning, I thought, okay, I'm going to have to tell John this is at max a half an hour, not a three-hour discussion, which I know you could easily do. So, um, you know, as I said, I've defended over 100 audits myself uh, with two major companies. Um, You know, when I led that role um, before I ever came to direct employers. And today, our members need need assistance on a regular basis whenever they have OFCCP audits and, and, you know, have a question or, or need some ongoing assistance or, you know, help from any other part of, of our, our teams here at DE. The one thing I've observed over the years, though, is that the OFCCP audits are always changing. And that was true, you know, when Shirley Wilshire, and I've learned a lot of this from you, John, but Shirley Wilshire ran the OFCCP for eight years during the Clinton administration. And she kind of inno- innovated four different types of, of compliance evaluations that she referred to them as. And there were four different kinds um, that that she focused on. And one was a compliance review, which they call compliance evaluation. Most people just call it an audit. And that's their main audit tool, Um, a compliance check. And and I think we like to call it here a drive-by audit. Um, It's just kind of, you know, throw a dart and and see what sticks and, and, you know, 20 my, minutes in and gone. Exactly. My, my daughter used to call drive-thrus um, pop garages. Uh, that was before she was old enough to buy beer, but <laughs> it was a pop garage when, when she was a kid. Um, there's an off-site review of records, but I don't know that the OFCCP has ever even used that. And then a focused review, which um, Craig Lean and the, and the Trump administration kind of focused on, and you know they had... No pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Thank you for that. Uh, it's really weird. I didn't even think about that. Um, but they had Vevra focus reviews, Section 503 focus reviews, and then they were going to do promotion focus reviews for a minute. And then Jenny Yang came in and said, nope, we're not doing that anymore. So uh, what are our DE members really want to know today, John, and and really what I would like to discuss with you is what is going on currently with the the ever-changing audit world of OFCCP and what are the issues and the practical advice to handle um, these issues at the OFCCP that that we could give to our federal government contractor members? Well, it is always changing, Candy, as you say, and as we sit here in August of 2022, right now they are doing about a thousand audits per year. That includes uh, construction and supply and service, both. This is way down at historic low. They used to do, uh, when I was at OCCP, uh, I had a a bad feeling if we did fewer than 7,000 a year. (laughs) Uh, Well, they have uh, have a lot fewer employees today, too. Well, about half. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we used to do full on-site reviews 100 times out of 100 in those days, but these audits have changed uh, quite a bit. So it seems like a good thing uh, at first blush for contractors that they're only doing a thousand. But the downside of that is that they are doing what I call a deep dredge. These are very multi-year, difficult, complex, time-consuming audits in a way that they weren't in the old days. You know, 
when you say deep dredge, we used to say that when Pat Shue was in charge, which was she began the, deep dredge, which was the prior Democratic administration. And I certainly don't want to have a political discussion, but it does seem to move from active case enforcement or active case, um, gosh, management, management to active case enforcement, depending on the um, political party in office. And I think we are back in the deep dredge and the active case enforcement focus today. Very much so. 2015, Pat Chu definitely, consciously, purposely, and she signaled this publicly, wanted to change the audits, slow them down, make them go deeper. She was afraid that the OCCP was missing discrimination by moving too quickly. And uh, then uh, we've been waiting to see where this OCCP is going to go because every director puts his or her own oh, yeah. stamp on it. And leave their uh, legacy. we're seeing a return to deep dredge. But second, there's two types of reviews to keep in mind. Supply and service, which most of us just think of as the, the regular contractor uh, type of uh, audit that applies to the non-construction world. And then there's the construction contractors, and they're going through a new uh, evolution right now because After there Baker was, DC, right, there was a Baker DC case decision. Uh, <laughs> that was yours. Alert, I <laughs> represented Baker DC. It shut down OCCP's construction program for about two and a half years while they rebooted and have just recently, in the last three or four months, started their new life of construction audits. Uh, and we're in the very first early opening uh, moments of that new era. You know, Tina Williams at the recent NILG in Boston actually said that, that um, the, the construction audits were starting anew after the Baker DC decision. She publicly said that. I was very pleased to hear her. So they started out tepidly, uh, purposely, uh, with the construction side of things with compliance checks, which are those quick 20-minute right. kind of flybys, drive just looking at records, one from each of the three OSCCP programs. Not deep uh, at all, but they're through those 400, and they're starting to now do the full compliance reviews in the construction world as we speak. They are unfolding uh, mm -hmm. the first dozen or so uh, uh, are in progress right now. So the, the next thing I think to, to keep in mind about these uh, audits is that the OCCP regulations uh, for the last 50 years have broken uh, these audits into three parts, whether it's supply and service or construction. Very formal, distinct segments of an audit. This becomes very important to where we are today. The first is called the desk audit. Uh, you'll find these in 41 CFR section 60-1.20, and it's all laid out there as part of the compliance uh, review. Next is the on-site, and then the third is the off-site. The desk audit is what we would uh, normally think of historically and currently as that portion of the audit where the contractor would respond to the audit scheduling letter and its yeah. attached itemized yeah. listing that calls for a certain set of documents uh, described in the itemized listing. OSCCP then receives those and then evaluates them while sitting at their desk. They're not on site at the contractor's location. And then they make a decision. Do they go on site or what do they do? The way the regs look at it is that you're supposed to uh, either stop uh, at the uh, desk audit or make a conscious decision now to go on site and get more records. But what we've seen in the real world is uh, for the last eight or nine years or so, that OSCCP is starting to blur the lines between each of these three distinct segments and do during the desk audit, what I called the never-ending desk audit during the uh, uh, Obama administration and which is reappearing now in the <coughs> Biden OSCCP administration, a merging of all of the things that you used to do during the on-site is being moved forward into the desk audit. Well, John, remember when we used to teach at Nelly, you used to ask how many supplemental data requests people had seen, and at that point I said 28, and you said you hadn't seen more than what I had received. Now, mind you, that was 28 separate requests. So each email, I remember one email had about 30 things they wanted in one of those emails. So. If you multiply it out like that, it was probably another, you know, 600 <laughs> things that they wanted. I'm just throwing that number out. But they wanted so much additional information. And now I'm seeing compensation interview questions. There are 200 
questions long. And that's all during the, quote, desk audit. Right. So the current process has uh, erupted three different issues that contractors have to think about. And I think that's where we'll end up in this discussion is what are the practical ways that you deal with this current situation where OCCP is behaving very differently than the way their regulations have been written for 50 years. So issue one is how do you deal with this seamless, no distinct part audits that just mush everything together during the desk audit when the regs say and the Office of Management Budget uh, has said OCCP should only do a desk audit and stop um, based on what they got during the desk audit or they should then have probable cause to go on site and they have to have probable cause like uh, you see on TV and NCIS or uh, <laughs> CIS, whatever, C- CSI. CSI, whatever show you like. Uh, it's just like the criminal process, but there is a civil side of it. You've got to uh, have the elements of a warrant. You have to have probable cause to come on site. You have to have evidence of a violation since they no but longer, then- since 1996, automatically come on site. They're making a discretionary decision, and so under the Fourth Amendment uh, of the Constitution, they have to have probable cause to come on site. So they have to have evidence from the desk audit materials that there is a violation. And you're saying the desk audit materials really only include what is requested in the itemized listing, not all of those supplemental data request items. And the proof of the pudding there is that this is a very formal process that OSCCP undergoes with the Office of Management and Budget when they request every three years authority for their audit scheduling letter. And it says we're going to do a desk audit, and it has these components, uh, which is so John, the itemized listing. So, John, let me ask you. I know you've been to court a lot of times on behalf of your clients against the OFCCP. Um, but why and how can they get away with that? Because they build their, quote, probable cause with all of the supplemental data that they have gathered. So they're not really following the process. And I know, you, I know you're huge on the Administrative Procedure Act. And I know I'm not saying that that's part of it. But how do they get away with this? I don't, I don't, that's the piece I don't understand. Well, it's just the, the analogy I would give you is to baseball. Uh, can you steal first base in baseball? And the answer is yes and no. If the batter drops the bat and walks down to first base and just stands on it, uh, he can stay there, comma, unless the other team goes and gets a referee, gets the umpire, and says, listen, get him off of there. He's not entitled to be there. And then they remove uh, that, that runner, take him off of first base. And that's what OCCP is inviting and requiring contractors to confront is that issue. They're stealing first base. They're doing something that's not in the rule book, but if you don't stop it, it will continue. So contractors do what? They they follow through. Well, they've got three choices, don't they? Option one is that they do what OCCP wants. We should talk about the pros and cons of each one of these uh, approaches, but Number two, uh, they um, uh, can say no. Just say, I'm not going to respond to that request. This is a desk audit. You're only entitled to what's in the itemized listing. We've given you that. If you think that there's probable cause, tell us what your probable cause is. And if so, we'll let you come on site and explore whatever is the, uh, the problem that you have. By the way, OCCP has not been trained in this in the field. You won't uh, hear them responding confidently in response to your request for their evidence of probable cause, they do have what they call indicators. That's what the guys in Washington who drafted up all of the forum language that they use to send back and forth between contractors and the OCCP will give you. We have indicators uh, that the following is true. They really mean probable cause. They just don't want to say that for reasons that uh, are, are totally unclear. That should be pretty straightforward, but they use the words indicator, fine, no big deal. But uh, then you'll look at that and see whether you agree or not, and then decide whether you want to engage. And the third option has been the popular option over the last uh, eight to nine years where we've seen these deep dredge audits that are trying to blur the lines between the three stages as they audit, has been to negotiate some middle ground. So 
I think you know how frustrated I get on a daily basis when I when I get emails from from our member uh, membership development folks who are dealing with members or a member that just calls me directly. I have plenty of them <laughs> or sends me an email and you know help and and everything. The thing that I that drives me crazy and John, you know, because I've I've beat you up over on, on this for the entire time I've known you. With all the audits I've had, I never once used an attorney. I had in-house counsel that said, if you need anything, please let us know how we can help. Um, they would also say, you know more about this than I do. Um, you know, I was very fortunate. I had a brilliant mentor at my first company where I did this, and she's still probably the most intelligent person when it comes to affirmative action that I've ever known. Um, but then I went on my own when I when I went to uh, Cardinal Health, and that was at American Electric Power, where I where I had Mary Kofer as my mentor, brilliant woman. Um, but at Cardinal Health, you know, the attorneys, everybody, both places, the attorneys were like, "If you need us, let it, let us know." You know, John, I build relationships, so I would build relationships with my compliance officers. I would also do my homework. I made sure that the data that we provided was good data. Okay, so I was one of those contractors, I, I like to call us the good actors, the good contractors. And you and I have had this discussion on a number of times, and I, I've, you know, commented that, well, you don't maybe know a lot about the good contractors because maybe a, maybe when you get in trouble is when you need outside assistance. I know you're going to slap me across the room here and say, no! <laughs> and, and I've learned, okay, that was, that was my old thought. And now you've heard me say a million times, don't try this on your own. You know, get your counsel involved or get out out outhouse counsel. That's what I <laughs> quietly call you. Um, outside counsel involved. Don't don't take on the liability as an HR person on your own. And and I still do stand by that that um, knowledge. But the piece that drives me crazy is that. The contractors, the HR people that are in charge, don't know enough to push back, or they're afraid to push back, because these are people from the government. These are people, and, and this is, I think, what drives me craziest, these are people that we expect should know more about the regulations than the contractor. Well, you've made several very excellent points there. Let me take the first one. Lawyers versus HR in audits. The nature of the game has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. It used to be all okay, about well, affirmative action. 10 years action. ago is when I did my last affirmative action plan, so okay. It used to be all about affirmative action. It's now all about non-discrimination, either in hiring or in compensation. The affirmative action piece is almost forgotten. I used to kid uh, clients during the Obama administration that uh, I that if you called a district director and said, uh, uh, may I send you the uh, phone book or uh, an affirmative action plan, they would say, we, won't, we don't care. Uh, we're not going to look at the affirmative action plan. We're just here for the disparity analyses involving uh, hiring, promotion, and involuntary termination, and your, your compensation data. That's all that counts. And that's become more and more accentuated with each passing year, including in the Trump OCCP and now the Biden OSCCP. It's all about uh, the, the discrimination issues in the case. The happy news is, and I know this will come as a shock to you, uh, Candy, but <laughs> I, I do represent many, many contractors that are compliant. <laughs> I was but, sitting here uh, thinking, gosh, some of your clients are going to listen to this podcast. They're, they're going to say, what's she saying? <laughs> I really re retract that. I don't mean it as a negative. That used to be my old opinion. <laughs> and, and most So I do stand correct. Most contractors <laughs> are in compliance, and OCCP is so fine. They're stepped on, but they're, they're getting stepped on. OCCP has only found non-discrimination in about 2% of their cases over the, the, the many decades that they've been pursuing discrimination, which really dates from the, uh, the late 70s in, in, oh, in earnest, but 50 years anyway, let's call it. But it's uh, uh, not the most prominent finding that they make, because 98% of the time they find it's you uh, in compliance. Yeah, exactly. But the 2% of the time that they don't, it's typically about non-discrimination. Now, a new surprise 
in the Biden OCCP has been that they have begun to cite a lot of uh, nickel and dime affirmative action paperwork violations, and you and I have chronicled those in prior webinars, but it, it's a large number of different affirmative action violations, about 20 or 25 of them, typically. Well, yeah, isn't mandatory job listing is like number four, but not for our members. I just want to be very clear about right. that because we, we, we check those very carefully. Actually, it's moved up to number two oh, wait, in terms two of the, the affirmative action side citations. Wow. And um, uh, you're right. Uh, your, your members haven't shown up in those numbers. No, thank goodness. To, yeah, because of you know, the fine work that uh, they're well, all doing. I remember Craig Lean telling me, because I, I said, if anybody gets one of those conciliation agreements, and they're, they, they say because jobs haven't been posted, and it's like, well, yeah, they are posted but they're listed, and who cares if they're posted? And I, I told Craig Lee, I said, well, I just tell the members if they get a conciliation agreement like that to not sign it. He goes, well, they have to sign it. I said, oh, no, they don't. Right. <laughs> so. Well, let me take the last part of what you were addressing, because let me just reiterate the three issues that are in the audits and then figure out how you think, in light of the way things are going, uh, contractors ought to proceed against their, their various options. So one is this... Are you going to let OSCCP uh, blend everything in the three-part audit into the desk audit and just sit there at their desk, finish the itemized listing, and then start a whole other round of what used to be called, as you referenced, supplemental data requests, which are emails asking for more documents, which they're not authorized to do. What they're authorized to do under the regs is to come on site and then gather documents by hand. Just say, lean across the table and say, Candy, during the audit, uh, I need access to the following 14 personnel files. I need access to these applications. I need uh, access to this compensation information or whatever it is that they want. The second uh, issue is are you going to uh, hold OSCCP to forcing them to show probable cause to come on site if and when they choose to come on site? So if you, you think about the contractor's rights here, it is to say, I'm only going to give you during the desk audit what was requested in the itemized listing and in the transmittal letter that asks actually for the affirmative action plans. The itemized listing asks for lots of different documents, as right. you know. Stop there, and then if they have probable cause, they come on site, and then they get documents that are relevant to that for which they have probable cause to believe that there could be a violation. They're going to gather that to confirm that or reject that notion, and if there is a violation, they have a right to remove those documents to preserve it as evidence. Then force them to the off-site to then reconcile their thoughts and go into negotiation with you about whether there's a violation or not. The third issue is what are you going to do when they are going beyond the regulatory requirements? We have an example from just last Thursday. OCCP issued a revised directive mm -hmm. 2201 that they first issued as 01, 2201, that's the, the first director of 2022, that they issued March 15th of this year. They've revised it already. The first one was quite a mess. They uh, have cleared that up. But they have said in there now for the first time in history that you have to do, quote, an evaluation of compensation. Mm -hmm. The Biden OCCP is making their mark in audits as compensation. It's all about compensation. <clears throat> they don't even care about failure to hire. They find failure to hire along the path. That's an incidental. It's almost a okay, it's here, we'll, we'll take care of it. But their passion, their interest, their focus is all about compensation. And they've now said you've got to do an evaluation. Of course, the regulations don't say that. Right. And the regulations, more importantly, don't specify what the evaluation would be. Yeah, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked, John, when they started talking about very technical evaluation techniques that, I mean, I think I'm a, an intelligent HR person, and I'm very familiar with various types of regression analyses, but there were things in there I was just like, what on earth are they talking about? Not that I'm stupid, but if I don't understand some of those, what about people who don't have the amount of experience And, and more importantly, you've been through a hundred audits. Exactly. Uh, and these have never, ever come up. Ever. That's the proof of the but pudding. But I did do my I did do my compensation review, and just for the record, and I do want to go on record, cohort analyses are by far the absolute best. 
by far. Yeah. Because you can look at real data, you can look at, and I used to always say, put your OFCCP lens on it. And I've used that with our members, I've used that with the other people I worked with at the various companies, and I, I would say, if it looks funny to you, you know it's going to look funny to the OFCCP. And for those who don't know what a cohort analysis is, it's a simple comparison of Harry versus Sally. Exactly. Whether it's compensation, you're comparing the two. Whether it's hiring, you're comparing their qualifications, etc. And it's the most commonly used analysis in discrimination law, whether it's the EOC or OFCCP or any civil rights agency, because most of the data sets, even today, even in big companies, is not subject to systemic or class treatment. Exactly. Very few numbers of uh, similarly situated people make up enough of a number count to allow for that. But there is a, a role for it, but it's very, very tiny. So the, the issue with the compensation analysis that uh, occurred uh, on Thursday, and we wrote about in our Week in Review at some length, is that they then tried to backdoor uh, the approach to this by creating a regulation in effect, even though there isn't one, by telling contractors, here's what we're going to be looking for in an audit. And they specify a whole lot of different kinds of analyses that they expect as part of your compensation, quote, evaluation. And as a result, they're saying, this is what you have to do to satisfy us in an audit. So of course, they're trying to drive contractors now through this sub-regulatory directive to do an evaluation, number one, and number two, do it of a type and quality that, uh, that they're, they're threatening in an audit. So in the real world, Candy, uh, let's back up uh, to 30,000 feet for a moment and think about what's happening here. Before the uh, verification, AAP verification portal that sprang this, this uh, spring, no, no pun intended. No pun intended. Spring in the spring. Uh, closed that in June, June 30th of this year, where they caused contractors for the first time in history, by the way, without legal authority in I my know, judgment, I, without <laughs> issuing a rulemaking, as they should have. But a lot of contractors complied, about half but of them. 40, I, think, I think it was 44%. Um, Jenny actually yeah, announced that. For, so let's call it a little bit more than half did not comply. Almost half complied. Uh, but now a lot of contractors which did not have their affirmative action plans have their affirmative action plans. And in the old days, their audits, uh, their AAPs that were summons for audit would then be prepared specially again, what I called an audit-ready AAP. And so what I think is going to happen now, since you have to have an AAP to verify, is that when it comes to this evaluation of comp, that was going, is going to cost you several dozens of hours, if not hundreds of hours, and tens of thousands of dollars of cost, what contractors are going to do is they're going to verify an AAP that's bare bones, and then when there's an audit, they're going to then prepare an evaluation of comp and other things that are heavier if they choose to comply with OCCP's uh, demands as opposed to standing on their legal rights. That's going to be the, the legal issue. But the... The other notion here that's quite important is that if you read OSCCP's justification to the Office of Management and Budget, which they have to do every three years in writing, and it's public, seeking permission to continue the right to collect affirmative action plans, they tell us that you're spending on average about 17 hours to prepare that affirmative action plan for minorities and women that as of last Thursday, they now say the includes a compensation evaluation uh, that's going to have all these many component parts. And if anybody thinks they're going to even collect the data in 17 hours, they're out of their mind. This is going to be a six-figure exercise for many companies, but a, a, uh, a five-figure uh, cost uh, for, for most. I mean, you're going to be spending ten to thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. Well... It, let me just, uh, I took some notes on my phone during Jenny's presentation at the NILG, and she said, and I'm quoted, because I, I, somebody else was sitting next to me at our table, and, and they were taking notes as well. She said, you do not have to do two pay equity audits as long as you can prove you did it. So then this directive went into how you're supposed to prove that you did it. And, you know, I, I think... 
we, we've put the fear of God, I think, in, in the contractor community, um, not we, the, the OFCCP has. Um, but I, John, really what I want to focus on for the, for the rest of our time the, together this morning is what advice we give to the contractor community to get through these audits. And you started that. But, you know, as, I, as I've gone on record saying, and I really do want to retract, I don't want to ever think that anyone to think that, you know, only the bad actors need attorneys. Because now I do stand on record and say, you, you know, to be smart in a lot of situations where it just gets too difficult to, to make any sense with your your audit, you know, situation, it is wise to get outside counsel or at least your own counsel, your in-house counsel involved. Because I think the OFCCP responds differently to the legal community as opposed to just a contractor that's answering a compliance officer's concerns. But I think the thing that I see the most is that, the, as I said this before, the contractors are afraid to push back. They expect the OFCCP to know more than they do, as they should. You know, um, as you and I have both seen, they don't. But I've always built that relationship. So even when they didn't know as much as I did, they would listen to me because I built a relationship with them. Now I think we have had so many contractors who have just gotten beaten up. You know, we, we've, we're kind of past the bullying that everybody talked about all the time. I don't hear people talk about the bullying anymore, but that was a common thread uh, in not the Trump administration, but the prior uh, administration, the Obama administration, the active case enforcement. I don't hear the bullying issues right now, but I also don't hear the opportunities for the community or the contractor to say, you know, I, I don't think you have the right to ask for that information because it's just assumed that they have to provide it and they need to go to knowledgeable outside counsel. And I'm saying outside counsel, and I'm not trying to put a sales pitch in for you at all, John, because there's a lot of knowledgeable attorneys out there in this in this field. But it almost forces a contractor to go to outside counsel. And trust me, from a company, from working for two companies that will pay for outside counsel if ne if needed. I mean, because both companies did. But when they hire somebody in house that they expect to know all about affirmative action, and then you say, "Oh, I I I need help." How, what do you what do you recommend? Realize two things have, have happened here. You're going to have to make a judgment case by case as to how serious the audit has the potential to be. Maybe it's a small establishment in their last uh, selection of contractors for audit. Most of them were very tiny establishments, 50 or 60 uh, employees. You're not going to have a lot of excitement there. There's not going to be a lot of hires. There's not going to be a lot of compensation issues to uh, evaluate. There's not much meat there. But let's say you have a, a, a an evergreen situation. Google, yeah. You've got a lot of uh, hires. You've got a lot of applications. I, I have clients in the manufacturing sector, in the retail sector, where even though it's hard to find people to, to, to hire, they're going through two, three, four thousand applications a year because they can't find people that have the qualifications they need for uh, customer service, for various kinds of technical uh, entry-level jobs. So you'll make a judgment about that. But let me go through uh, each of the three options and give you my take on what the contractor should be thinking for each of the three and see if you uh, have uh, agreement or some other thing based on your practical experience uh, and, and HR experience uh, as well. So if you stand on your rights, what you're going to tell OCCP is we gave you everything in response to the uh, desk audit request, the itemized listing as it's called, uh, your audit letter uh, request. Uh, now, tell us if you have probable cause if you want to come on site. No, we're not going to respond to email requests for more documents because during the desk audit, you don't have a right for anything more than what's in the itemized list. <laughs> you and listing. I responded to those. <laughs> you know, the desk audit is the desk audit. If you want to do an on-site, let's talk about that, but uh, let's see your probable cause. 
And then when you come on site, no, you're not going to go A to Z, which is what OSCCP wants to do. They want to look at all kinds of issues that are unrelated. They think they're just doing a full compliance review like they used to do before 1996 when Shirley, you know, stopped the on-site 100 times out of 100 approach that OSCCP had always had in place until 1996. So if you have probable cause to look at uh, uh, a failure to hire issue, that does not get you into sexual harassment, that does not get you into uh, compensation, that doesn't get you into anything else but what the probable cause relates to. Uh, and then we'll give you those pieces of information and uh, uh, whatever witnesses uh, you think are, are relevant. And then you're going to go away and you're going to go through an off-site. The downside of that is that um, uh, you're head knocking. This is where the bullying came in uh, in mm -hmm. the Obama administration as deep dredge took on and people got tired of being accused of being discriminators when they were still only finding it 2% of the time. They were tired of playing fetcher and gopher for lots and lots of documents and spending thousands of hours often. So the second approach uh, to that first option of making them stand on their rights is to uh, uh, play ball. Make that decision, but you got to have to hold it. You, you can't make that decision and then later cave. That doesn't really work, and it doesn't achieve right. your objective. All you do is get beat up and then relent. So if you're going to stand on your rights, you better have a conversation with your boss and your boss's boss and uh, be firm about this. Let's go the other way. Let's play ball with OSCCP, which is what most contractors have done historically, although they stopped that during the Obama administration because it was getting pretty tough. I remember vividly a major corporation calling me and saying that they wanted me to take over all of their audits, even the non-problematic ones, because they were going to be problematic uh, within a couple of months in their experience. They had been going through 30, 40 audits a year. Wow. They had eight audit defenders. And wow. uh, the Just senior labor counsel it, right? called me and said, you've got to take them because my last audit defender refuses to defend any more audits. They are so beat up and they're so done. And I can't put a bayonet in their back and make them you know, go forward. They're valued employees, but we have to respect them that they're just not going to do this work wow. anymore. So we've reassigned them to other HR work. And we took on lots of audits to, uh, to deal with that. But second option. Play ball with them. And the downside to that is, uh, well, the upside is going to be it makes OCCP very happy. There's no friction. They're getting everything they want. The downside is you're spending a lot of time. Now, one of the problems for compliance managers to understand, and this is brutal, it's ruthless, a lot of people up top in the corporation don't care because who's the sacrificial lamb there? It's the compliance manager. Yeah. It's like a tree falling in the forest. Nobody's there to hear it. Poor compliance manager is just spending all of his or her time uh, dealing with oh, this never-ending audit. Yeah. And nobody upstairs cares. Well, get it done, Candy. You know, let us know if there's a problem. Well, they care when it's successful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trust me, I always always would get emails, great job. I'm like, yeah, you don't know what I did well, for this. <laughs> but they don't know and see all the anguish. They don't see you burning up uh, dozens, if not hundreds of hours, uh, late nights, weekends, uh, other projects getting deferred. No, that's uh, not allowed. <laughs> so, so the real question is, can you fight and get the third option, a middle ground? And right now, OCCP is testing the resolve of contractors to resist. They are hoping that you are going to continue to roll over and play ball. Uh, but that's going to be decided by about a thousand compliance managers in this country, the thousand audits that are in progress. But they're watching very carefully right now at OCCP to see if they're going to get away with it. They're going to see whether they can get away with stealing first base or whether somebody's going to call them out and go to the, uh, the, the umpire and say, stop. The umpire, in the worst case here, is an administrative law judge. Uh, in the real world, OCCP is not going to file suit over the failure to get access to documents uh, during a desk audit because their lawyer is going to tell them, we don't have authority to get supplemental data requests. We don't have the authority to do anything in, during the desk audit beyond the itemized listing. That's really crisp, really clear, just that nobody historically has wanted has to pull the trigger yeah. on that. Well, you know, John, I, I want to get to the point where we, we just give our, our listeners the, the best advice that we can. And I 
I have to tell you, I've I've kind of done all of these. Um, I I pretty much have always played ball with the OFCCP, but I always did it as a prepared contractor. And I, I said this briefly when we were starting our conversation today. I knew what was in that plan when I sent it. I, you know, a lot of contractors don't. I do. <laughs> I, I mean, when I was at AEP, we did our own plans. When I was at Cardinal, we we outsourced them, and I think that's a, a big uh, problem today. I know we are no longer in the affirmative action planning business, um, but I am a strong proponent of once you receive your plans from an outside vendor and we were very careful with this as well when we were doing when we had tapestry up and running and that's to educate our our clients our members our customers as to what's in that plan and walk them through it literally walk them through it when i was hired at cardinal health the outside vendor that was used for our affirmative action plans was one of the people that interviewed me <laughs> to see if I really knew what I was talking about because they didn't want her to, to do as much as she had been doing because that's what they were going to pay me to do. So that was kind of kind of an interesting uh, interview situation, but it was a fun one, um, and it was someone I knew, so that one was kind of nice. But the, the point is, is that it's so important before you ever send that affirmative action plan is, is that you know what's in that plan and that you do your compensation review. And that's what I'm going to say because I would say 99% of mine were cohort analyses that we, we've already discussed the benefits of that. And there were a few situations that I found and I corrected before that plan ever went to the OFCCP. So I knew what was in there. So when I played ball with the OFCCP, it was because... I was basically saying, you know, give it to me. Come on, bring it, bring it, you know, because I can I can handle this. Now, the one time that I have stood on my rights and every single day of my job here at Direct Employers, every single day I stand on my rights on our rights about the mandatory job listing because that's something that, I mean, Pat Shu stood up and said, literally, she got a question about it. And it was a, a session you were giving with Jeanette Whipper and, and uh, Melissa Spear. And somebody asked about job listing, and Pat Shue stood up and she said, well, you know, I could answer that question, but I'm gonna, I see Candy Chambers sitting here, and she's probably the country's expert. And I, I just sat there and went wide-eyed, and she said, I'm going to let her answer that question. Do you remember that, John? I do, and sitting right in front of me because I sat on the podium uh, with uh, <laughs> two OCCP regional directors at uh, my right uh, side uh, was – your uh, CEO of uh, the the major competitor to uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. to uh, DE and <laughs> I kind of he didn't like that kind of wondered uh, if Pat was uh, stepping on some uh, oh no that was Scott back then oh you mean talking Pat Chu yeah, 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 yeah Pat Chu yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, the uh, uh, the the upshot of it is that uh, you're right I think you have to pick and choose your fights. There's three reasons I have found in my experience that contractors stand on their rights. One is there's a small vein of them, but uh, they're very prominent. Uh, and that is people who say we're people of rule of law. We complied with the law. We know our regulatory requirements and we're not going to yield on that. Don't treat us any differently. Don't treat us as criminals. Don't treat us uh, beyond what your proper authority is. The second, much more popular reason to stand on rights is the extraordinary burden that uh, occurs yeah, if you don't. Yeah. Because uh, the regulatory requirement is, assumes a certain amount of economic expenditure in this area. And companies rely on that. CFOs rely on it. It's booked and budgeted uh, in every company. And we know what these are supposed to cost. And these AAPs are supposed to be you know, a relatively small, simple, cost-free thing, not a multi-million dollar exercise. The third reason is if there are bad problems that they yeah. don't want OSCCP to get into. And that's true. Yeah, that's. Uh, I've, I've seen that a, a couple of times. It's not the, the major driver. I would say the major driver is number two, the concern for distracting attention uh, and during the Obama administration many companies ran out of people with an HR to defend multiple audits simultaneously yeah, and, and given how deep they were going and how long they were going and it became a major budget issue yeah that that is true I I think you know we're kind of in in kind of a middle ground right now um, but I 
I, I do. Well, the parties are testing each other right exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that you make. I, I think the strongest thing that we can recommend, and I think you and I both agree on this, is make that affirmative action plan a living document, you know, and, and follow what it tells you that your, your um, evaluation, when you've built that affirmative action plan, follow what it's telling you are your problems. You know, and follow through on what your proposed solutions are, because that is the the most important way of of seeing improvement. We talk about DE and I, and how that can help you with your or how your affirmative action program can help you with your DE and I strategic efforts. You know, we we talk about it being um, kind of a strategic plan. You know, it it literally is is you reviewing. What happened last year and what does this tell us we need to do next year? And I think if, if people can do that and, and I don't I don't think they have to read the the you know CFR, <laughs> but they do need to know specific regulations. So um, with that, John, I, I, I want to just close out the conversation um, with five rapid fire questions. We did this with you before, but oh. I've but I've got new questions, so um, you know the drill. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. All right. We know you're a big wine guy. Red or white? Oh, definitely red. Okay. All right. Uh, what are you reading currently? And the CFR doesn't count. <laughs> That's got a thrilling ending, though. So. <laughs> he uses it as a nighttime uh, story for his kids when they were yeah. growing up, right? <laughs> and for those who don't know what a CFR is, that's the Code of Federal Regulations where all of those CCB's rules, among many others, are written. But I'm currently reading a book that Jamie Costello gave me called The, the Fox and I. Oh, okay. uh, It's a very interesting book by a uh, park ranger from Montana about a uh, fox uh, that happened upon her jogging trail and oh. uh, her ruminations on nature and the, the, the essence of life. It's, it's a fascinating book that nobody's ever heard of before until <laughs> Jamie discovered it somewhere in some obscure bookshop. Okay, well, at least you're reading. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a good read. Do you know, I had a, an interview one time, and this is an American Electric Power, and the HR director asked me what the last book I read was, and I said, Clifford the Big Red Dog. <laughs> and he looked at me, and I said, I know I'm not supposed to talk about having children, but I said, I read religiously to my kids, and that was the last book I read. <laughs> trying to be honest. Um, so what what is the first concert you attended? Oh. Woodstock? <laughs> no, no. Uh, it was earlier than that. I mean, I, Janis Joplin, oh, uh, the wow. Fillmore West, downtown oh San Francisco. And uh, I, I think there were some people that were conscious in that audience, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and yes, she was drinking Jim Beam on the oh stand, my gosh. I mean, on the, on the on stage. Uh, stage. And uh, yes, uh, she was carried out eventually uh, oh, wow. about two in the morning. Uh, she was done. She couldn't go anymore because she was blotto. What was your first job, John? Oh, I was a dishwasher at minimum wage. Uh, uh, 65 cents an hour, I think, uh, oh, okay. downtown Cannery Row, uh, Monterey, uh, California. The best seat in the house, though, I could look at the bay uh, from my Hobart uh, dish <laughs> washer machine and uh, uh, got fed out of the kitchen in a, in a wow. oh, uh, life's rough, huh? Michelin-rated yeah, uh, restaurant. Oh, I worked at a, a, gift sh a hospital gift shop for a buck an hour. I was 13, so... <laughs> Uh, and I was a soda jerk next. So anyway, what is one thing about you that surprises people? Probably that I hand crank ice cream. Oh. And a lot of it. When are you going to hand crank it for Well, I almost the brought my, uh, my equipment with me uh, on this trip, but I ran out of uh, suitcases. Uh, it does travel with me. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a DE hand crank in the future. Okay. <laughs> Jordan, you hear that? <laughs> that means with DE, Recruit Rooster, and Rocket Build. So, so one canister of uh, Oreo and one canister of uh, vanilla. And uh, everybody will want the uh, Oreo all day long. All right. Oh, really? <laughs> I just want one bite. That's all. If I've like. had one person tell me, I've had 500 people tell me. I do this for for kids' parties, birthday parties, soccer parties, uh, field hockey, uh, you name it, baseball. Uh, I've, I usually crank about 150 quarts uh, a summer, uh, historically. And uh, uh, I would say 500-plus people have told me it's the best ice cream they've ever had. And we've never had it. 
Well, so. <laughs> keep, keep working hard and you, you okay. can get there. <laughs> so, John, I really want to thank you for your time today. You know, we, we can have this conversation so easily because it's probably 99% of what we talk about on a regular basis anyway. Agreed? Oh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's fun to be here. Well, good. I appreciate that. You know, as we learned at a recent conference, uh, OFCCP Director Yang is currently hiring 100 more compliance officers to handle upcoming audits. So there's no better time than the present to analyze your internal efforts ranging from meeting VEVRA mandatory job listing requirements to positive outreach and recruitment efforts. And if direct employers can help, don't hesitate to reach out to our team. We have lots of people available that can always assist. And as always, John, as I just said, thank you for joining us and sharing your unique insight into handling information requests during an audit. With so many people worried about pushing back during the audits that they're facing, it's important to arm yourself with education on what's required and really be ready to illustrate your practices. While the types of audits continue to evolve, it's important to play the game and play to win. My mantra, I always add play fair and square. Something I'm sure that you will always agree with me on, John, as an attorney yourself. Absolutely. Okay. So if our listeners would like to connect with you, what's the best way to get in touch? Oh, just uh, send me an email. Put Fox Wang Morgan in your browser and uh, I'll come up. Or just jfox at foxwangmorgan.com. Correct. And I will also um, share this because a lot of times, John, I get questions from our members. And one thing I want to be very clear about my attitude has changed, and HR people should not take the liability on if you're not 100% sure of your answer. And I know, John, I call you frequently and get feedback from you before I ever respond to a member. Not always, but you know, if it's something that I'm just not 100% sure on, I will get information for them. And I don't charge our members for that. We, we pay you um, on a regular basis, but you know, if they would want you for their outside counsel, that would obviously be between you and, and our member or the client. Oh, of course. So, yeah. Okay. So I thank you again. This is a lot of fun. Okay. All right. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the DE Talk podcast. Stay connected with direct employers on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to our emails by visiting directemployers.org slash subscribe to receive notifications of new episodes, webinars, events, and more.